220 billion. That's the reported size of the New York State fiscal year 2023 budget that the governor and legislature agreed to on April 7th and adopted by April 10th. Yes, I say reported size, since as in the past, the state has not released its enacted budget financial plan, which sometimes shows that the size of the budget is not as it was first announced. But this was an extraordinary budget year, not only because New York is crawling out of a recession and still fighting a pandemic, but the state coffers are full with extraordinarily strong tax revenues, money from last year's tax increases, and $10 billion in federal COVID aid left to spend plus a new administration of both presenting its first budget and running for election. While all this money provides a unique opportunity for the state, the state's enlarged bank account may have made the agreement even harder, not easier. Throw some policy in the mix and this year was as tough as ever. Yet, when the smoke cleared, the budget included a tax rebate, a tax holiday, and state spending that increased about $14 billion, with more money for daycare, record education increases, rent relief, healthcare, a stadium to accelerate downstate casinos, and oh, okay, I will stop there for now. So what will this mean for families, for renters, businesses, students, and the state's fiscal future? And welcome to What's the Data Point from Citizens Budget Commission and Gotham Gazette. This is Ben Max from Gotham Gazette. And this is Andrew Ryan from the Citizens Budget Commission. Thanks so much for tuning in here for this episode of the show. We haven't been getting together for as many of these podcasts, but we're going to pick the pace back up again here in 2022 as we get going. We've had some great uh, discussions in the podcast stream, of course, from some really excellent CBC events, but uh, I'm looking forward to being back in the mix more here as we get going. And what a perfect way to get that started then by getting together for a discussion about the recently adopted New York State budget, $220 billion, as Andrew said, and its state Senate finance chair, Liz Kruger, a Democrat from Manhattan, joining us. Senator Kruger, thanks for being here. My pleasure. I always enjoy the show with the both of you. So we got a budget. Uh, it, was a, it was a little late. An extender was needed, but, uh, but we got a budget deal. Um, we'll get into a bunch of specifics, but one or two that uh, pieces of the budget that you consider the best parts and one or two things that uh, you consider things that you're not that happy about, but they got in there or a compromise got in there on something best and worst parts of the state budget from your vantage point, Senator Kruger. Okay. So we made good on our second year commitment for CFE funding for the public school system throughout the state of New York. That only took about 30 years if you're counting. Um, so I'm very happy about that. And we expanded money for universal pre-K outside of New York City. Of course, New York City has UPK, but most of the rest of the state has not, even though they've seen that it's working successfully and they've wanted it. So we put in some significant funding for that. We also made a first year commitment on heading towards a universal childcare program, which I really think can and will be game changing for both the working families of the state and actually the economy of the state, because we know we are desperately looking for more workers to get back into our workforce. But unless you've got good quality childcare for zero to four, you're never gonna be able to get both parents back into the workforce. So we're attempting to do what most of Europe has figured out for decades. If you provide childcare 
you actually have far more flexibility in your workforce and far more people able to go back to work. So there's not enough money for a, a jump to everyone gets childcare right away. Um, but even in this first year, we'll be able to be providing um, significant subsidies for people up to 300% of the poverty level and some capital money to build in childcare deserts and some new models that we haven't been able to try before, um, depending on the geography, because how you address childcare in a densely populated city is very different than the solutions in rural New York. So we're pretty excited about that. We made a real investment in human services and healthcare workers, um, a little bit catch up on all the colas that they hadn't been seeing for years and was wrong that they hadn't been seeing them. And we attempted, although I think mostly people are disappointed if, uh, in us, trying to increase the amount of pay for home care workers. And we have a desperate shortage that we have to address. Um, they'll see a $3 per hour increase in the first year and a half. Um, they would tell you right away that is inadequate, and I would agree. But we pretty much ran out of the funding options um, when it got to them. With the child care, interestingly, once we get it rolling, we can get a serious federal match forever for that. So I think those are some of the really good things we got done this year. Things that I'm not so thrilled with, if you were asking me both. Yes, you know, yes. I'm publicly and have always been opposed to using government money um, for private sports stadiums. Um, I didn't support the Yankees, the Mets, the Knicks, the Islanders, the Nets, maybe not the Knicks, maybe they didn't get one. Um, and I did not support the Buffalo Bills stadium. I do believe that the billionaire family who owns the Buffalo Bills could have paid for their own stadium. The people of New York didn't use need their tax money to pay for it. So I disagree with some of my colleagues and the governor on that one. Um, but I also expected I would lose, to be honest. I was also hoping we could expand the essential plan in healthcare to cover the 5% of New Yorkers who do not have health insurance now. I think that that was a missed opportunity, which we can still revisit. Um, but we did do some important changes in eligibility within healthcare um, and increased Medicaid reimbursements, particularly around mental health services where we were paying so low that no one was getting access to mental health care services. And that has had all kinds of ramifications throughout the state of New York. So those are some of the, I think, more highs than lows for me in this budget. There were definitely a lot of highs in the budget. Tax revenues are strong. State increased tax last year. There's federal money coming in, as we said from the beginning. The question on the long run is, can we afford this in the long run? What will the future look like? Because we almost have a virtually insatiable appetite for funding programs. And there are a lot of different you know, benefits that can be provided people. The question is, are we setting us up in the future for budget cuts or fiscal instability or to take this temporary tax increase that was enacted last year and making it happen to be permanent? What, what does it mean in the long run? So as you well know, Andrew, you know, the economy goes through ups and downs and we sort of ride along and hopefully guess right. And being smart in government means making sure you've got emergency options for yourself if you guessed wrong. Um, but the fact is, 
I think the indicators are that we have a path that we can continue to follow for the out years. Um, the monies that we put in are all for the kinds of infrastructure issues that people say is what makes them want to be in a state like New York, having an educated workforce to come work in our businesses. So investments in education. We also increased funding for CUNY and SUNY. I should have mentioned that also as some of the wins. So investing in education for an educated workforce, investing in infrastructure of um, roads and bridges and environment, um, also critical for anyone who wants to continue to live in our state. Um, again, as I mentioned, childcare allows us to expand the universe of people who can be in our workforce, which is also what employers are looking for. Um, so I think that um, access to health care and health insurance, a healthier population is a obvious win for public health. So I actually think the monies we spent expand a secure infrastructure model for the state that makes us a more attractive state. There's always been the fight between if our taxes are too high, will we draw people in and our economy will be robust or will it suffer? And in fact, the data is pretty strong that even though our taxes are higher than lots of states, our economy is more robust um, than our taxes as far as being a draw to the state as opposed to people fleeing. Yes, more people are leaving New York, but they're not at the high end, interestingly. And so the myth of the wealthy will leave is actually proved to be a myth, um, even though it is having an impact on some subset of the population. So I'm actually not feeling that worried about our tax rate in relationship to what we are spending and our ability to make good on these commitments. And of course, when you start to read some of the national data on how much wealth is being produced, even during this period of COVID, for the extremely high end of the population and businesses, you know, you start to just swallow in your throat loudly. I mean, I was just reading an article this morning about companies that have increased their profit margins three and four times and are reducing their taxes at the same time. And I'm like, okay, we flunked some tests. We completely misevaluated how we should be taxing people in our economy because how can a company in a period of COVID increase its profits by four times, sell itself back its stock to make more money, and not pay any taxes? Something's wrong. And but I, I do think. I do think you touched on two really important points. One is the value proposition. What you get for paying higher taxes is more, as you say, social and hopefully physical infrastructure. Um, kudos to you and the governor for proposing it to um, put more money into state of good repair for our roads and bridges. These are kind of you know short term, short term you know failures when we don't invest and then we increase our long term costs. So um, I understand that. So you're right about that value proposition. Um, and you're right that we need to track that data. It's interesting because our share of millionaires um, has actually, uh, the share of the nation's millionaires has gone down 21%. Not that we don't have people here who are making money and paying greater taxes. It's part of the reason why you, ha you have all the money in the budget um, um, to allocate. 
Um, but I do think we work in a competitive, an interstate competitive environment where we really have to be careful because of the um, ex both the cost of doing business and living between places and the experience in COVID where some of those very same people that you pointed at and, and, and that you pointed to in the companies figured out that they don't actually have to be here all the time. And that is potentially scary. And of course, the governor proposed a balanced budget, meaning five years of balance, extraordinary. We've added at least $4 billion to that budget, but it's hard to know. So that might throw it into out of balance in the future. And then the tax increase, that personal income tax, when that fades, that's another $4 billion. So what's great about this conversation, Senator, is we get to have it over the long term and we get to have the experience and see how it plays out. I am concerned at the CBC, we are concerned because if we set ourselves up for a crisis when the economy turns, and it will someday, we just don't know when, you're right, we ride it up and down, we won't be able to take care of those most in need. And that would be the tragedy. And that would be a tragedy. And which is why I also believe that putting money away for a rainy day in reserve funds and rainy day funds is crucial. But I just want to go back to that one point about the changing way we view our economy and the way we track and even count taxes. So yes, we have lost some millionaires. And what's fascinating is they're living in other states, but they're still doing business in New York. So we still have the ability to tax them and we need to perhaps rethink, are there better ways to tax if they're actually earning their money here in New York and having companies here in New York, but aren't necessarily living here in New York? I don't want to advantage them because they decided to pick up and move to say Florida um, where they seem to advertise being a no tax state um, when in fact they're still making their money. We're still the goose that laid their golden eggs. They just decided to put some of their golden eggs in home somewhere else. And I really do want to emphasize that the changing structure, I think in relationship to the federal taxes um, is definitely not just for New York, but for the entire country, putting ourselves in a situation where we, of course, have more and more costs because they just keep going up. And our businesses, some are doing beyond any imagining as better than they could possibly have imagined doing. Um, and yet they're not paying taxes, period, at any level. And something's wrong with the way we're evaluating economic activity when the folks who are making the largest amounts both personally and through their businesses just aren't contributing to the economy excuse me to the government services that allowed them to make this money in the first place so i hope cbc will work with me on that because i need to get my arms around that better you're right we need to think about innovative structures and i do think we we've started to we've too much narrowed our options. One of the one of those we should continue to work on is a vehicle miles traveled fee. As the gas tax goes away, um, we need a way to keep our roads and bridge infrastructure healthy. And we're shifting very consciously and through market forces and deliberatively to electric vehicles. Our gas taxes is going to go away. We need a way to think that. In this budget, there was actually a gas tax holiday. You didn't mention that I on your pros and cons. What right. did you think of that? Um, I think if I was the governor, I would not have been one of my big pushes. 
Um, I can live with it, but I don't actually think it's the answer for anyone because, you know, reducing the price per gas, assuming the counties choose to match, it will be about 33 cents less per gallon. But the punchline is the cost of gas is just going to keep going up and up and up at the same time as we need desperately to get off fossil fuels as fast as possible. And so people who are trapped with no option but to use fossil fuel cars are going to end up paying huge amounts because as fewer and fewer people are using that product, the cost will go up. And of course, we know now that we are so heavily dependent on tyrannical um, leadership in the countries that have oil setting the prices for us that it's politically on a world stage just a necessity for us to get ourselves off of fossil fuel. So I'm not so big on that gas tax because I don't think it's a solution to anything. At the same time, I empathize with the people who have no choice but to use their gas vehicles to get to and from their jobs. And outside of New York City, it's a different reality than we have here in the city. But I'm very excited about the commitment we made through the budget on environmental concerns, the $4 billion bond act, which of course has to pass the voters in November, but if it does, it's actually 4.2 billion. And a lot of those funds go specifically into climate change um, proposals that can make a huge difference, including EV vehicles, expansion of um, battery sites all over the state, buses shifting to, EV buses over a relatively short span of time, um, reimbursement to people who use EV vehicles instead of their old gas guzzlers, um, commitment to speed up the rate of investment in offshore wind, which is proving to be an incredibly effective model for lower cost electricity that is sustainable and doesn't run out. I actually had a meeting the other day with some people who were like, well, you know, solar's not great at night and maybe the wind would stop. I was like, okay, it's true at night. Solar's not that useful, but we have batteries for storing the solar energy. The wind isn't going to stop guys. Like mm-hmm. just chill out. We're not going to run out of wind on the oceans. So I'm actually very excited about the governor's um, increased commitment to moving us along in wind, in offshore wind power because New York State actually has an ideal coastline for offshore wind, and we should really be leading the country um, in new projects. So I'm, I'm totally psyched about the opportunities there. Let me ask you about one piece that, that sort of connects to, um, to what we were discussing about um, state priorities and competitiveness, which is affordable housing. Um, you know, the, the governor touted a, a $25 billion five-year housing plan. It, it seems to me that, you know, we need to sort of dig into the details there a little bit more and, and ask for more about how that'll play out. But there were other proposals that Governor Hochul had put forward in her agenda earlier this year that didn't make it into the budget. Um, there seems to be a really, really significant problem in New York City with uh, housing development keeping up with with demand. And part of the reason it seems like we're losing people is housing costs. I know, you know, in my sort of uh, age bracket and, and, you know, people with kids are looking to New Jersey, are looking, you know, um, outside the city and in, in cheaper places to live. 
more space, et cetera. Did, do you think this budget did enough to address, you know, the affordable housing crisis in New York City, especially, um, and, and what could be done in the legislative session to come to, to help break some of the, the problems that we face? So I, I'll keep it simple. There's never been a budget that's done enough to address the affordable housing crisis in New York, and it just keeps getting worse. Do we have all the answers? No. And ironically, they're not all money. So for example, the data shows, and your data people, that with a skyrocketing cost of housing all over the country, and they're talking about like 10% increases in the other big cities in the country over the last two years, New York City saw a 35% increase in rents over the last two years. And that's because our, our, our pricing is so completely overheated as to be just at the level of insane. Um, a 35% increase in rental housing costs. And it's mostly driven by this awful program called 421A, which some people still like to pretend actually creates affordable housing, but does anything but. And there are multiple reports out now showing that a program that's costing the city $1.7 billion per year over the last five years. So what is that, like $8 billion, $9 billion? and we got less than 100 units of actual affordable housing out of that. If somebody said, I'm going to charge you $9 billion and give you 100 apartments, would you take that deal? You would be like, over my dead body would I take that deal. But that program's sunsetting, and I'm glad it is. And the governor in real estate came forward with a variation on it, which actually I think made it worse because shifted to allowing condominiums again, which are not at all affordable housing. And in fact, the math on those would be only 8% of New Yorkers would be actually economically eligible to apply for them. So they're just the opposite of affordable. And that's where the program would shift. And all these developers always want to build in Manhattan and downtown Brooklyn, which has become Manhattan, if you didn't notice, um, and has just increase the overheating. Plus, with all these super tall buildings being built with oligarch money, who they're storing here in empty buildings because they're not allowed to put their cash in our bank, so instead they're putting their cash in empty buildings going into the sky, that's also overheated the um, real estate market with no creation of affordable housing. So we have some really terrible policies that work in reverse of affordable housing. Having said that, should we figure out what are the programs that are successful in building new affordable housing and put more money there instead? Yes, we should. Should we make sure that people are following the rules of the road? Um, we find more and more and more cases of where the law says X, and sorry, the landlords are not doing X. We need to hold them accountable um, for keeping units affordable that they got paid to have as affordable units in the first place. Um, and we have to confront the fact that the wage rates we pay, a huge percentage of our population is completely inadequate to afford housing in the New York City market. So when you say some people are, are moving farther away and coming into New York City for jobs, I don't know that that's the end of the world. I mean, New York City is a relatively small chunk of land. 
And I personally believe improved mass transit, the concept of faster rail, that would mean that in an hour I could live, you know, in counties north of here that have much cheaper land and I could afford to live there on a lower salary rate than I could in New York City, but I could get to and from work within an hour, that would be a huge victory. So I'm not afraid of the concept that you talk about building more affordable housing outside of the five boroughs. And there was an attempt at that well, this year yeah. by the governor that unfortunately <laughs> fell out of the budget. I was a big supporter mm -hmm. of that. Right. Yeah, no, I mean, we will move on, but I think, you know, there's a lot more to be said about, you know, the state, um, you know, the state policy role in this discussion, because the log jam that happens in New York City, when you get into uh, so many local issues around, you know, housing, zoning, really, and housing development seems to be holding the, the city back in a, in a significant way. Um, Andrew, you want to? Uh, I just, you know, I think there have been many, many reports on 421A, I'd love to send you and anybody who else who's listening interested in the report that my colleague here at CBC, Sean Campion, did, cleverly titled Amend It, Don't End It, about 421A. Um, and I think his analysis is quite compelling on the fact that without some subsidy, and we can also talk about property tax reform and a whole bunch of things that make it hard to you know, build here, property taxes, land cost, labor, the whole things. New York is, is a tough place to do some of these things. Um, that without something, we actually won't be building enough housing of any types, except maybe you're right in the Manhattan and the Manhattan, we'll call them lookalikes. Um, and, and we won't be building. And part of that issue with the rent increases is actually scarcity because we haven't been building enough housing, both in the city, around the city in, of different types and also in our region. So we need to kind of decant and, and for some help the market adjust some of the rates, but of course have, have a um, affordable housing program and it is tough to crack that nut. But I think uh, Sean's piece is pretty compelling that if you don't have something, we actually won't build the housing that we need to keep up with our demand of a variety of of types. So there's still time in the legislature to figure in, in the session to figure this out. 485W, the governor's proposal was kicked out of the budget. There's still time to do something um, for housing. And, and we I'm all totally know we open need to, to a serious discussion about this with the housing economists and the realists. But 485W, like 421A before, were deals struck by Rebney and the trade unions who were going to be building. And basically, Andrew Cuomo said, go tell me what you want and I'll give it to you. What kind of policy is that? And, and worse, than, worse than that. Their tax policy, my God. Worse and than that. One, the same one, thing. Of, one of our recommendations is whatever is the next program, and it might be a, a tax program or something else, we need to require, and I, I just urge you as, as a leader in this, um, require that the data be kept and tracked so we actually know what's going on and we can make smarter data-based driven decisions, something you and I have talked about a lot and agree on. We have to make sure that happens because then we're just flying blind every five years. We're not actually flying any better. Right. And no, speaking I, I agree. of that principle. Data. Yes, okay, yes, Mr. X. No, go ahead. Speaking of that principle. 
No, no, I was going to agree completely. Mm-hmm. You know, our intentional failure to keep track of data is the worst part of how we do government in New York. And I'm also very pleased we got our database of deals language into this budget. That's, that's what I was there. That's where I was going. Go and ahead. a number of the other tracking of economic development programs, including forensic accounting of ESD deals, the ability of the controller's office to audit and track the money before it is actually spent and to evaluate whether this is a rational use of state money. So we put back or put in for the first time, as the case may be, um, quite a few of the transparency issues that I think we do all agree agree on. And I'm very glad that we were able to do that. I think I, No, I think that was a great victory. I will say your original proposal was slightly better than what came out yes. at, at the end of the day. You know, there, there's a few loopholes uh, on as practicable and they don't have to publish the actual deal itself and but make it available on request. So keep fighting for those things. It, it can even be better, but it was, it was a success and it wasn't just a paper success. Sometimes, you know, these things, everyone declares victory and thinks a baby step is good progress. There was enough of a step that it's real. So congratulations. And we can still work on statutes that make these stronger. We on the other hand, hard at the table. Yes. On the other hand, the intent here is to make sure that our economic development investments return benefits to New Yorkers. You mentioned the stadium. We had put out a, um, uh, a uh, piece before the stadium deal was proposed that was basically, we need the analysis to show that there's some benefit here. We just don't want to wing it in Buffalo. And, and, and I think the data are the first piece, but we still see that in, in this budget, as well as the extension of the film tax credit, um, which as CBC has um, pointed out, is not necessarily our best value use of money. Although better than stadiums, when you look at the data, <laughs> it's all relative. Well, um, let's, now that we can track the data, let's see how it is. That's, that's true. You're absolutely right. And also on the database of deals, we couldn't get in looking at the local deals through the local development corporations and IDAs, oddly enough, because of how they were created under law. And we couldn't quite slide them in under the same language. So I feel very strongly that we still need to do that but I think it will need to be a separate statute because people have no idea how many of these deals get done through all of these LDCs, IDAs, where they don't need to come to the state for approval, but they're giving away our tax money as well as their local tax money. Yes, we um, CBT did a report and we're updating it now. That's around $10 billion state and local split between the state 5 billion and the locals 5 billion. That's a lot of money. That's a lot of money. That's right. That's right. We say a little bit more, um, you know, it, it's to an extent, it's a little bit old news at this point, right? The, the budget, you know, wound up being a bit late an extender was needed, but you got to a deal, no major harm done, it seems on the, you know, on the tardiness, although it's obviously not great practice. Um, but we say a little bit more about the sort of final negotiations and how much not getting into the specifics on on bail reform and criminal justice reform, but but how much sort of that discussion and the stadium deal coming in so late muck things up and how you feel about 
you know, sort of how the sausage was made here on this budget, because I think a, a lot of people are rightly pointing out that, you know, this was um, not quite a fulfillment of some of the governor's promise of a, of a new era in Albany uh, beyond, you know, some of the worst practices of the of the Cuomo years, although he he cleaned up in some ways some of the some of the prior practices he inherited. Uh, but but what are your reflections on um, on that process and how much these these big issues the governor introduced late in the game affected things? I do think that the big issues she threw in the late in the game are the reason that we were a week late. Having said that, being a week late has really no effect on the people of New York. I just want to make that clear. We did an extender that made sure the workers continue to get paid, which of course is a crucial issue. Um, so no worker for the state of New York was not paid or did not get their paycheck on time. The only people who didn't were the legislature, I think. We don't get ours. I don't know, maybe when we get back next week. Um, I'm not sure. You know, that was no, somebody that was somebody calling you to check in on where, that's where they, they, they were saying, where's my, um, <laughs> where's my paycheck now? Um, so nothing else really was impacted. If we had been multiple weeks late, you start to walk into the do local communities know how much they're getting in education funding when they're dealing with their education budgets that they take to their own voters for ballot initiatives on their local school elections. So that would have been relevant, but we got it done in time. And otherwise we had no real impact. But why did it happen? I do think that the governor decided late in the game to throw a bunch of really big things in. And I'm not quite sure even why they were in the budget because I would argue neither of those things needed to be in the budget, both the criminal justice reform package which really wasn't budgetary and could have been dealt with as a freestanding set of issues. Um, and even the way she ultimately funded the stadium deal, which was taking a big chunk of money um, that she got from the Seneca Nation under a high pressure negotiation on some money owed. I think she just froze their bank accounts and took the money. Um, but apparently legally so, and then said, okay, we're going to use that money as most of the money for the stadium deal. So it didn't technically need to be part of the budget and the remaining amount of money was enough or not so much that she couldn't have gone through other ESDC processes to get the money, but she wanted them in the budget. And that meant having to negotiate these things. Um, and there were other items that, look, ultimately we agreed on, but we weren't just saying yes automatically to every one of her proposals. Um, I think one thing I am incredibly proud of with the Senate Democrats, and we've been in the majority now, this is our fourth year, and we've put together a really strong staff on the finance side and on the program and council side. And so even issues that, for example, I wanted and I agreed with, they would come and say, here's the problem with what the governor wrote up, and we really need to negotiate this for it to make sense. And I would take a look and go, you know, that's right. So, you know, I'm considered like Ms. Cannabis, right? I moved the marijuana law through seven years of suffering to get it done. But there was a proposal by the Office of Cannabis Management 
um, for $200 million to do startup funds for um, social equity candidates for licensing, a true commitment in my bill, a true commitment of mine and my colleagues. But the deal the governor put on the table, which was 150 million private equity combined with 50 million state, as far as my staff was concerned, was giving the private equity folks way too much power over the deals. And we took a look and said, no, we need control over the deals. We're not interested in private equity taking over because we don't think they have the same commitment to social equity that we do. And so we changed that deal. And that took, I don't know, eight, maybe eight back and forth meetings um, and a lot of hard pressure to get the version we thought was the right one for the state of New York. So even when you're all on the same side, if you take your job seriously, and the Senate Democrats absolutely take our job seriously, and I take this job seriously, we weren't going to just say yes, because it had the right titles, right? We were really digging into the language and saying, okay, this is a big new program. This might be the difference between whether we succeed or fail on our commitment in social equity licensing. We've got to get this right. And there were lots and lots of stories like that. And certainly everybody knows the complications around the criminal justice changes and what was real and what was being used for political purposes, but quite effectively to put pressure on all those concerned um, to make some changes. And you had DAs in there with their agenda, police in there with their agenda, um, criminal justice reform people with their agenda, the legislature who thought, oh my God, we went through this twice already for two years. Like, aren't we done with this? You know, the numbers don't back up our need to do these giant changes. And so all kinds of modifications and negotiations, I, you know, it's sort of, I have the highest respect because I'm not on that committee um, for the, the codes committee people and particularly my colleague Jamal Bailey, who's the chair of codes and who had to defend the positions we took on the floor. Mm -hmm. um, I guess that final night and did an extraordinary job explaining yet again what we did and what we didn't do. And guess what? The Republicans are going to still beat us up about it. They're going to still try to use it as, as a storyline to kill us at elections, because that's really what this was all about anyway. This was a political campaign issue. And he did, he's a phenomenal young senator that people haven't watched him enough. I have the highest respect for him. And he worked so hard. And I can guarantee you he's getting beat up by all sides from the minute he sat down that night on the floor of the Senate um, when he was doing exactly what he was asked to do and that we tried to negotiate out painfully, painfully, but we did. And the governor felt that that needed to be in her budget. And that was a political decision, not necessarily a budget decision. And then the, I is even told like after the fact that the stadium was never intended to be a budget issue. It just all came together at the exact same time. I have not exactly, hmm, I think home is a good word for it. Um, but there suddenly, there it was at the last minute, as was a new amount of money for a capital program yet to be determined for $350 million 
on Long Island. And that was also a political decision. You didn't have to be born yesterday to know that she's concerned about Long Island and Tom Swasey. Um, and I want to help my Long Island colleagues also get reelected. But I'm not sure I would have come up with a $350 million to be determined gift at the last second. But one of those got in the budget. You know, it's interesting that last piece um, is in a certain sense about accountability. Having an appropriation, a lump sum appropriation, you know, without definition. And there's some control or oversight restored, as you said, in the budget, some, some good stu stuff happened. So you and I will continue to have our great conversation about spending and, and CBC will always urge more spending restraint or not always. We hope to not have to urge spending restraint, but it's not exactly there how we think it should be. But what we both 100% agree on is if we're gonna spend the money, we should get value. We need a management system, we need the data, but not just the data, we actually have to use the data. And you have been a leader in this and, and have a performance management, um, I don't know if that's the right name for it, a piece of legislation. But right now, for example, on education, $13 billion of federal education aid. If you add up the increase in education aid with fully funding foundation aid formula, that's going to be a total $41 billion over four or five years added to education. Yet, I don't see a system that's going to, that's going to demand results and hold districts and SED accountable for results. What can we do? I do not want to, I love coming back every year and having this discussion with you, Senator, but I don't want to be back in three years and say the kids didn't learn because that would be the real tragedy of spending money on education, daycare, healthcare. We need to have a management system to make sure we're getting results. What can we do about this? So I agree. And, and part of it is the, the dilemma of what level of government is supposed to take these responsibilities. So I keep being told that's the city government and the mayor wants the continuation of mayoral control and doesn't want any changes. And yet as a state legislator who represents New York City, I'm asked those questions all the time. I want those answers. And so in fact, the mayor wanted mayoral control re-upped for four more years within the budget. That's what the governor put in. And the legislature said, no, we have serious questions that we want to ask and have answered about how we're gonna get accountability um, in the city system for how the money is spent and evaluation of the successes and failures. Um, and so we have till June 30th to deal with those also. And I think that's going to be a very hot topic for us when we get back next week. Um, how are we going to try to build in more accountability um, for the New York City system through mayoral control? And also, we have a new set of regents and a new leader of the state education uh, department, Commissioner Rosa. And I have to say, she's been getting pretty high points from my colleagues about taking on tough issues and coming up with reasonable answers that we weren't getting for years and years and years. So I also, it's not an answer, but I actually think they are more serious people over there in SED and the regents who also want to have these questions answered or want to fix the policies at the state education level. Because again, we're not supposed to micromanage at the state level in the legislature on these issues, but you're right, we're giving them all this money 
And we're all, when I say we all, I mean the parents of the children who go through our school systems want the outcomes that they deserve for their kids. Nobody doesn't want the best school system for their kids they can possibly have. Of so course, and I think get the I, answers. I think your point, and I'll just drill into it for a, a quick second, is there's a difference between control and accountability. You want to hold, uh, the state can set standards, can track the data, can hold accountable, but someone else can be in control. And it's not just the marriage, you know, CBC is in favor of mayoral control, but it's all the districts need to serve all the kids in New York, in, in, in the state with, with that money. That's the hope. That's the hope of, of um, CFE. Exactly. And that, and that was the intent and that is the hope. Um, so, but you, you were right. A lot of new money is pouring down into our schools. And you have, at the, unfortunately, at the same time, this sort of pandemic where it seemed to suck money out for things that no one ever even imagined we'd be dealing with, right? Having dual systems for two years where some kids were learning at home, some kids were learning in school. You almost sometimes couldn't keep track and parents would tell that. I don't know whether my kid's supposed to be in the building this week or they got sent home again because three kids got sick. I don't understand how they're learning anything anyway. And other people were saying, yeah, it's pretty impossible for kids to learn under these circumstances. They're probably all gonna be a year or two behind, but don't worry because everybody will be a year or two behind and they'll catch up, which that's a bad punchline, but that might be true. But then how do you deal with that from a data and evaluation perspective, right? Um, some kids seem to thrive on the home learning. I have a couple of little nieces who their parents are convinced they self-taught themselves at a much faster rate than they were going to learn in school. And their seven-year-old is like ready for high school now. Um, <laughs> <laughs> just by sitting on the computer and wow. self-learning, they're like, oh, she's one of those kids who can teach herself. But I'm not sure everybody's kid is like that, to say the least. Definitely not. Um, yeah. So we we have we have lots of struggles. You're right. We, we're not running out of things to get completed. As we um, as we say goodbye, we've hit on a few um, things that are obviously issues to watch in the very short uh, legislative session that's about to start. Without going into you know lots of discussion on it, any one or two other items that our audience should know are are top of mind for you for these next uh, several weeks? Gosh, I was just asked to review my priority bills and then like was told now cut that by a third, you know, cut that by two thirds. <laughs> I'm like, what? I have to cut by two thirds. Um, I'm actually very focused on trying to get first passage of a constitutional amendment on equal rights. It's called the Inclusionary Equal Rights Amendment. And those issues have become more and more relevant as we have a Supreme Court who apparently no longer believes in equal rights or protections of people's privacy or reproductive rights um, at the federal level. So it's becoming more and more the mandate for states to take on these responsibilities. So we've been negotiating with the assembly on language and language on constitutional amendments is where you pull your hair out. Um, and we're trying to get that done in first passage this year, because then it would be second passage with a new legislature next year, hopefully coming to the voters in the 24 election. Um, so that's, I'd say my most complicated goal uh, okay. as a priority for myself. 
All right. Well, we will leave it there. State Senator Liz Kruger, the chair of the Finance Committee in the State Senate, Democrat from Manhattan. Always appreciate your time. Thank you for the, for the time and the thoughts. Thank you for having me on, both of you. Thank you. Thank you very much, Senator. And for all of you listening, we'll be back soon with our next episode. Please send us ideas on Twitter at TweetBenMax and at Andrew S. Ryan and keep abreast of the latest news, fiscal analysis at, at GothamGazette.com and at CDCNY.org.